Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 102, I'm joined by two guests in separate interviews concerning the topic of medical professionals working in industry. Dr. Namrata Saroj of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals joined me first, followed by Dr. Ann Fung of Genentech. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now privileged to be joined by Dr. Namrata Saroj. Dr. Saroj is Executive Director for Ophthalmology Medical Affairs at Regeneron, and she's here to talk to us about her career and um, working in industry. Dr. Saroj, Namrata, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jay, and thank you very much for including me today. So, this is your first time on the show, and we have a lot of people who are in training who uh, listen to us. So, I always start, your story is a little different. We usually have retina specialists on. You're someone who works within retina, but did your original training in optometry. So, how did you first become interested in optometry, and how did you eventually become you know, involved in retina? Sure. So, my interest has, since I was a little girl, has been in um, eyes. I always wanted to work with eyes. I just didn't know what I wanted to do with it. So through my uh, training for undergrad, I discovered that I was very fascinated by optics and physics, which uh, naturally led me to working with an optometrist for the summer and eventually led me into going into optometry school. I really enjoyed my time there, uh, but once I came out of optometry school, I worked for a private practice for a couple of months. And within the first few months, I realized that maybe this was not something I could continue doing for the next decade of my life. Um, I would need a little bit more versatility and diversity in what I was doing, which led me to see what else I could do with my optometry degree. And in doing a lot of fetching around, I ended up working at the Retinal Research Center at Manhattan Eye and Throat Hospital in New York under the supervision of Dr. Larry Yanuzzi and his group, uh, which got me really embedded into the retina field. So let's talk about that transitioning into industry. Physicians do it, and it's, it's a big jump. And there's a lot of people in training who there's different ways you can work with industry. You can work with industry by doing trials as a retina specialist. You can work with industry as being a consultant. You could even become full-time and work for industry itself. Tell me about your transition and, you know, kind of the special challenges. You had written an article in New Retina MD along with Dr. Ann Fung talking about working in industry as a woman and, and how this was maybe there weren't as many people to kind of look up to or follow in their footsteps when doing this. So you're kind of a you're pioneer. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, that experience. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm not too sure about the pioneer aspect, but I did try to craft a sort of a unique role for myself. So um, exposure to industry started for me when I was working at the hospital in uh, New York. Um, I led all the clinical trials that were being conducted at Vitreo Retina Macular Consultants with you know, Dr. Nizzi, Dr. Fay, Dr. Slachter, and the, all of them. And they were really generous with their teaching as well as their time to make sure that I was being utilized, uh, not just as a research coordinator, but because of my training, I was utilized for clinical trial conceptions, design, um, and the execution of it, which I thought was very helpful for me to get an understanding of what industry did. I can, I'll be honest, I absolutely had no clue about how much work industry does to bring drugs to market and to maintain them in market till I started on, on this path. Subsequently, you know, I've been there for almost about five years, and um, you kind of start le- reaching a plateau when you say, what's next for me? 
coincidentally, Genentech at that point was about to launch Lacentis. They were looking for a medical science liaison in the Northeast, and my doctors, uh, who I was working with, uh, recommended me, and we interviewed, and it worked out, and it was my first step into industry of to go in as an MSL, and I'll, I'll be honest, I had absolutely no clue what an MSL did, um, so I kind of learned about what I was supposed to do as I walked into Genentech, and again, it's been a very um, interesting and uh, professionally enriching experience ever since then, and I think the advice that I have for uh, young physicians or physicians in training is to get exposed to industry very early on in your career. It doesn't matter if you end up going to work for them or you work with them, but you will be working for, with them because um, my most common sort of statement is that physicians and industry, it's a symbiotic relationship. We're all in it together. We're all trying to do good for our patients, and only when we work together we can, we can actually um, you know, accomplish that mission. So um, expose yourself to get involved, as, as you mentioned, Jay, with clinical trials, being a consultant, offer to do data analysis. If you know your attendee is working on something, get involved with it so you are indirectly getting connected as well. Um, I work with a lot of physicians who have great uh, research ideas, but they don't have time to do it, so they give it to their fellows. And you know what? Not only you get to lead a research project, you get to be first author on a paper. And I think all of those are very valuable things as you, as, as physicians, kind of establish themselves in the community. What are the most common types of projects that you work with with physicians now? What, what types of projects do people do? Yeah, so I can bucket them kind of maybe in, in three of them. One would be what I call publication and data analysis. So you know, what industry is privileged to have is a, a wealth of data sets. We run these large phase two, phase three trials that have so much well-controlled data that if anybody has a clinical idea to validate it, they come to us to say, hey, I thought about this. I think I'm seeing it in my patients. Let's look at it in a very much more rigorous way. So coming up with ideas and wanting to do research, uh, those data, data mining with us is one approach. Secondly, your own original research idea, right? So you might have an idea saying, I think the drug might be, uh, let's look at the drug in a way that it's not been looked before, maybe in a small population, maybe it's for the imaging, maybe it's for, hey, we didn't look at this one outcome in your phase two trial, let's look at it here. So that's the original research idea, which popularly is known as investigator-initiated study, so we can collaborate on that. And then finally, there is consulting. Um, and consulting is it's very broad. Uh, consulting just doesn't mean sitting in an ad board and giving advice. It could be, you know, we're developing a promotional piece. Can we, who should we go to? Okay, we can go to a physician to get feedback because, again, you guys are the end sort of consumers of what we are producing. It could be on, um, you know, big projects that we might be considering to implement on a commercial or marketing side that you can consult on. So there's lots of different ways and then, and then finally, the other way which we're not directly involved with, so I guess I have one more, but a lot of continuing medical education programs that are held, through your attendees, it would be good to reach out to those folks because they're always looking for people to be presenting at their medical education events. We don't have any control over who they choose. Any, almost everybody will know somebody who's working in for, for them, and I think that would be a good way to get involved as well. What about in terms of how to start. So I think that one of the things I've seen written is um, people sometimes are, may have ideas, but they, they may be passive about it. They may be waiting. They may not know who to talk to. So let's say a fellow has an idea or an, uh, someone out in practice has an idea. 
what's the easiest way to start and how, how quickly does the process move, let's say, if, I, if someone wanted to do a data mining study? Yeah, so I would say never hurts to ask. It, you know, I always say there's never a bad idea. And a lot of times people will come to me and say, I'm sure you've looked at it before, and I think you'll be surprised at how many things we haven't looked at. So I encourage folks that if you have an idea, talk to us. Worst come worst, we'll say we've done it before, or we are not interested, and, and then we'll move on. But at least you guys have tried. I always recommend that try and establish contact You know, when you are either in fellowship or training or when you are starting up practice. You want to, you know, you're so busy setting up a practice that you forget sort of some of the other research aspects that you were very involved with in, in training. So you get to know your sales reps very quickly because they're coming into your office very, very often. But almost every company and every product will have a medical colleague on the field. As I mentioned, I started off my career in industry as a medical science liaison, and almost every company will have that. So through your medical, through your sales rep, you can ask to get introduced to the medical person who will be your liaison between what you are doing and the headquarter. And those are the folks you want to go to with your idea. And it's their job to bring it to us and talk to us and set up meetings and, and follow through with that. Now, once you get an idea, how quickly or it's executed on, it's really dependent on so many things. It depends on the company you're working with, what their guidelines are. It depends on what other stuff is going on in that company at that point. Are they looking at several analysis already and this will come after that's done? And then also the interest level and what's going on, how current it is, that topic. So I think there is a spectrum of things that contribute to how and when a data analysis can be executed upon. You talked about how there's many different ways you can work in consulting. In a job like yours, what does your average week look like? Sometimes people say, you know, I would love to do industry, I would like to do consulting, but I don't know if I want to travel that much or I want to have more stability. How much variability is there in terms of what you do in your job? Are you traveling? Are you on the road most of the time? Or are you mostly in one place? So I, I might not be the best example of that. I'm on the road a lot. <laughs> So I, I might be the anomaly here. But nonetheless, I think for a physician who are considering to moving to industry, I always suggest that you really want to think through as to why you're doing that, right? It is a very, very different job. So think about the, the movement you have with seeing patients all day, you're going into the OR versus when you're working for industry uh, or any company as a matter of fact, you are sitting in an office, you're sitting in front of a computer, you're sitting in meetings, so it's very different. Nonetheless, there's a lot of more diverse jobs in company, right? So my job is in the medical affairs group, and I am responsible for connecting clinical and commercial as well as interfacing externally. But if you wanted to have a job that was much more stable, much more focused on clinical trials, then the clinical development job is maybe something that you want to consider. We have medically trained physicians who run our safety group because there's a lot of evaluation of safety events. There are medically trained physicians who run our regulatory group, and their requirements are very different. So, you know, as I said, the first thing you want to do is why you want to do it, and secondly is talk to a lot of people to get a sense of all the different types of jobs out there. The, the folks that you interface with on the field are not necessarily the same types of jobs you might want. There might be other jobs that might be best fit for you. You know, we, we both know each other dating to my time as a fellow at Wills. And one of the things I was super impressed with when I went to Mid-Atlantic Retina 
they have an amazing research department, right? And you talked about running Dr. Yunuzi's practice, the VRMY practice in New York, and Michelle Formosa and her team do a similar job for Mid-Atlantic. Yeah, I, I just think that, you know, I'm not nearly as experienced as you guys. It seems like that's arguably the most critical part of being involved in clinical research as a practice. So you've been on both sides. You've been on the practice side, and now you're on the industry side. You know, if, again, if I'm a doctor and I, I want to be involved in trials, what sort of things should I look for in someone who's going to help run my research division? So what, that's a great, great question, Jay. And, I, and you, you've been trained in, at a very, one of the best institutions when it comes to research. And I think a lot of credit has to go to Michelle there, too, who I've known for a very long time. And she's wonderful. I think you guys have established a research uh, research uh, practice that is, uh, it's very rare. It's not, doesn't exist everywhere. And, you know, one of the things that I felt I was able to bring to the table when I moved to industry uh, was the appreciation for the research coordinators. And anybody who's doing research, your number one person is your study coordinator. I think as physicians, people often underestimate the amount of work that goes into doing a clinical trial, you know, when I was at, at the practice and we would say, okay, well, you know, we used to say yes to every trial and then finally I had to start putting my foot down and say, we can't say yes to every trial because you guys don't recruit patients, but I still have to do the paperwork. And so, you know, really getting your coordinator on board, making sure the coordinator understands what is involved for budgets, you know, you need them as well, making sure the schedule of assessments makes sense, all of those things. I mean, you know, what we think very conceptually majority of the times, but you need somebody who's thinking very um, sort of logistically on this, does, can this work or can this not work? And I would say that you brought up a really good point that uh, befriending your, um, your research coordinator is probably the number one thing you want to do. One of the things Michelle taught me, and, and Dr. Alan Ho runs the research division, um, being a good site for a trial, right? So uh, you guys run trials, there are tons of sites, and there's um, there's good sites and there's sites that aren't bad, but they don't they don't do as well. Um, what are kind of the most important things that uh, a, a practice can do to be a good site and be a good place that's recruited for trials? So the number one thing, actually, the two very very critical things. One is make sure you have the adequate research facility, right? Do you need do you have all the uh, technicians? Do you have all the imaging equipment? Do you have the the support staff, the personnel that'll be able to dedicate their time. That's number one. But really, most important is if you are going to dedicate yourself to doing uh, or to dedicate yourself to doing a study for industry, recruit patients because you are taking somebody else's spot. You can you can imagine with sort of the explosion in the in the retina community on clinical uh, trials, everybody wants to be involved, and not everybody can be involved in a clinical trial or one clinical trial. So they're very selective, and one of the things from our perspective what we look at is how did they do in the previous trial? And how many patients did they recruit? Did they recruit what they committed to? Did they have protocol deviations that were more than the norm? So execution of the trial, but above all, recruitment in the trial is probably the most important thing. And again, how often are sites reporting in for regulatory visits? I mean, because I'm sure it varies sites to site too. Some sites are very good about staying up to date with the paperwork and the forms, all of that. How often are you, are you checking in as a company to make sure things are running according to protocol? So that, that actually the clinical trial operations is run by an entire group here. And that's very common to almost every, every company. And that's their job. That's what they do. I can't speak to how often they do it, but they have a regulatory monitoring plan set up uh, from the very beginning. 
in my experience, when I was on the other side and the little that I work on clinical trials right now, the, the big phase three clinical trials, it's done pretty frequently. But with the evolution of technology, uh, you know, a lot of things are becoming remote, so they are easier to do both at the monitor level as well as the site level. But we're seeing a change in that as well. Well, Navrata, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and I'm sure our listeners, there's always, there's always a hot topic, I think, because um, we go to medical school or optometry school in your case, and um, you do all this patient care-related training, and we don't really get much exposure to this side, which is becoming more and more important, especially in ophthalmology and retina. Final thing, if, if you had to give advice to, you gave some advice for the people coming out, but if you had to give advice to people coming out, especially women who may want to be involved in industry, but again, don't necessarily have the same sort of role models that, unfortunately, their male counterparts may have, though that is changing over time, uh, what would you tell them if they want, this is something they want to pursue in terms of involvement? So I, I would, you know, I've been lucky enough that I've been trained in, in a very male-dominated industry and have been treated very much at par with my male colleagues. And I think a lot of it has been because of my focus at work. So that's the number one advice I give um, any sort of young graduate is don't worry about your gender, just focus on your work. Because one thing I will say, at least for our retina community, that uh, we, have, we have brilliant people that work amongst us and they recognize work and talent, and they will help you build it if you demonstrate it. It's a very hardworking community, and they expect hard work, so I would say that don't shy away from offering to work and showing your work um, to these physicians as, as well. Uh, but I think, as I said before, the key, key to spreading your, your talent across different aspects of retina is really to be interacting with everybody. So don't focus just on interacting with the specialty that you are going to be working in, you know, with, with the attendees or the, the thought leaders there. Talk to the industry, understand how the peer landscape works, understand how the educational aspect works. So spread it all because you will find not everybody is going to like everything. Mm -hmm. You will find the needs that you are interested in and then follow that. But expose yourself at this time to everything and don't discount anything that comes your way. Last question, any chances you think you'll be uh, doing something besides retina in the near future? Cornea, glaucoma? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, you know I, I follow the fields. I've been in retina for, oh my God, uh, very many years now that it's very hard for me to imagine doing something else. But I don't want to discount that there's a lot of progress going on in other fields of ophthalmology, not just from a drug specialty perspective, like glaucoma or anterior segment, but we have digital technology coming, healthcare services coming. I think our field is just going to continue to advance from a medical perspective. So I will definitely keep all my options open. What's your next meeting that you're heading to? Actually, this one would be Arvo. So it comes uh, in about a month. Okay. Well, I won't be in Hawaii, but uh, if any of our listeners are going to Hawaii, Namrata's super approachable. She's awesome, and she's given us a lot of great insights. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to do this. Um, I think our listeners will also really appreciate it. And uh, thank you also for everything you do and for being a, a great friend. Oh, Jay, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you soon, okay? Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Straight from the Carter's Mouth is now honored to be joined by Dr. Ann Fung. She is a group director for medical affairs ophthalmology for Genentech. And she's here to talk about her career as a retinal specialist and now working in industry. Dr. Fung, thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Jay. So... Tell us a little bit about how you first made the decision to do retina out of ophthalmology, and then at what point you've made the decision to transition uh, your career. Retina came to me 
after I finished my residency, I actually took a gap year between residency and fellowship. I took the gap to do research, and that research ended up being in macular degeneration. So towards the end of that year, I was at Arvo presenting and had a conversation and learned about the medical retina fellowship path, and that's the path that I followed. And then you finish your fellowship. You do first went into practice? Yeah. After fellowship, I went into practice, and I joined my dad's practice and stayed there, became a partner, ran the residency research program as well as grew up the research program within our private practice. Ten years later, I had just a sort of personally frustrating day, and it was enough frustration that when the LinkedIn email crossed my inbox that said, hey, Genentech's looking for you, I clicked it out of frustration, and voila, here I am today. So you said you, you just, you know, it, it was kind of fortune. You, you just saw the offer and you looked into it. That's fortuitous. I think for many people, though, pursuing a career in industry, you were still involved. You're doing clinical research. They, they knew who you were. If I'm a retina fellow now and I'm graduating fellowship, and this is something I'm considering on somewhere on my radar, how do I stay connected and involved to know about these job opportunities? I think, you know, developing a network to learn more about what these opportunities is, is the first important step. You know, there are a lot of reasons to go into, quote, industry, and there's a lot of different things that you can do. My, my path was I had been doing my own research, leading studies for 10 years, you know, applying for grants and trying to get, you know, balance the funding request with actually collecting the data. And I was frankly getting frustrated with how quickly I could produce anything and make a meaningful difference. So for me, the step into Genentech was to be able to join a much bigger team with real experts that I could work with and produce things much faster and in a broader sense. So it's useful to use your network to understand what is so interesting about industry. Is it about leveraging resources to make a bigger impact to patients or to really deepen the community's knowledge? Or is it because you really love the business thinking and like to think on a really large system level for not just a country, but the world? Or is it that you really enjoy marketing and sales and that you are fascinated by those sciences. As you develop, figure out what it is that's so interesting to you, talk to more people, ask them about their day-to-day, and then depending on which avenue is interesting, start to get experience in those realms. So if you're interested in research, you know, be a PI, an investigator on trial so that you get to know good clinical practice and you get familiar with what it takes to effectively recruit a patient, maintain a patient in a study, and gather the data in that way. What does a typical week look like for you, for someone who's interested in a similar career? (laughs) Well, one big difference is that I have traded clinical practice in which I see six to seven patients an hour for the whole day, and I've traded that for back-to-back meetings from morning until evening. That being said, The meetings that I have are with really bright individuals in really different areas of a company. In one meeting, I might be talking to someone in business development about some ideas that they've heard about in the field to help them understand the relevance to our clinical practice. And then in the next meeting, I may be talking to them about how we might develop 
an early access program for patients ahead of FDA approval. And then in another one, I might be really digging deep into a new exploratory data analysis with my ophthalmology team to understand what the real significance of the data is for our patients. So it definitely keeps me on my toes and I keep having to flip my academic hats all day. Right. How much traveling is involved in your work? Well, when it comes to ophthalmology and retina in particular, since we have 52 meetings a year hosted by (laughs) ourselves and our colleagues, (laughs) we bring on a lot of meetings. Working for a company that is owned by a Swiss company, I do have the opportunity to travel to Europe maybe twice a year, depending on the role. Some people have to go more often and some people don't have to go as often internationally. And finally, you know, let's say, you know, one of the things you wrote about in uh, New Retina MD and in a column combined actually with Dr. Namrata Saroj was about Mm -hmm. doing this transition into industry, but also uh, as a woman and how that there weren't necessarily that many role models in that capacity when you decided to make that choice. What were some of the challenges that you faced? And, And if you were a woman who was in that situation, do you think that there's any different ways to approach that situation? No, that's the stumper. I must say, I don't think that I would approach it any differently. I think it's really, you know, becoming an outstanding clinician, really understanding what our colleagues need, and then being able to express yourself effectively is important, whether you're male or female. And these days in corporate America, the the concept of neurodiversity and equality is so strong in the United States that it frankly, it's just not an issue. Perfect. Well, Dr. Fung, final final question. So in terms of what you see going forward, you're someone who's on the cutting edge, you're involved in industry, and maybe not specifically about genetic, but just in general, what you see for the future of retina and pharmaceuticals. If I'm, again, a resident or fellow thinking of a career in retina or going into retina, what am I going to be seeing different in terms of the pharmaceutical options going forward? I am hoping, and I'm, I really am optimistic, that we are going to have more tools in our chest soon. Believe it or not, they actually are harder to come by than one might think. You know, the major VEGF revolution happened in the mid-2000s, and we haven't had a major new mechanism of action since then. So while it's not easy, I do see a lot of companies working on new mechanisms of action, as well as a few really interesting options for sustained delivery. So I think that we're going to be able to alleviate even more vision loss in the future, and I think we'll be able to do it with less impact on our patients' lives. Perfect. Well, Dr. Fung, I, I know you're extremely busy, and uh, I thank you again for carving out this time to come on the program and talk a little bit about your experiences. Any last piece of advice before you go to the next generation in terms of how to approach, even if they decide, let's say, to do a pure clinical practice, to approach patient care and uh, working with industry? I think my greatest advice to anyone in training or coming out of training is it's paramount these days that you begin to understand the bigger system in which we work. In medical school and our training, we're we're led to believe that we are the king of the pile. And in fact, we are, (laughs) for better or for worse, one of many, many kings in a really huge and complex system. So I'm going to spat out a few names, pharmacy benefit managers, IPMs, ACOs. There are so many acronyms now for the different ways in which medicine is organizing. I really encourage everyone to learn about that and the different structures as much as learning about great clinical medicine and research standards. Because only once we understand it 
ourselves and can begin to direct our future, can we help patients get what they need? Well said, well, Dr. Fung, thank you so much for your time, and I'll let you get to your next meeting, and hopefully we'll have you back on the program. Thank you. Sounds great. It would be my pleasure. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. It's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 102 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You will also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive, lessons from our pupils. And on the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the iTunes Store as well as Google Play. And you can like our Facebook page or find us in the podcast section of the iTunes Store and Google Play. We are on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And to contact us, click on the Contact Us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We really love getting feedback on things we can do better and things we are already doing well. And we appreciate the positive reviews people continue to leave in the iTunes Apple Podcast section of the store. Many thanks to Dr. Saroj and Dr. Fung for joining me. Thanks to Louis Kai, Mike Menacasa, and Angela Chang for producing this show. Thank you to the listeners for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you continue to inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.